Please be seated. Having died, risen, and spent a few weeks with the disciples, imparting a few last scraps of wisdom and knowledge, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, presumably for good, or at least for a good long while. The book of Acts, which is actually uh, part two of the book of Luke, the book of Acts is about the birth of the early church, and this is how it all begins. This is where it is all conceived. Jesus is gone, and like expectant parents, the disciples are pretty clueless about how to raise this new church on their own. Jesus tells them that the Holy Spirit will come to take his place, that it will give them power, and with the Spirit in their hearts, they will know what to do. But will it be enough? Will it be enough to guide them through the challenges, the arguments, the infighting, the persecution? Will it be enough to raise this new creation to maturity? A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the time or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you and celebrate your love. And may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. When I picked my son, Ethan, up from school last Monday, he took me into the school library and showed me something really marvelous. It was a brood of newborn baby chicks, just hatched, still huddled together 
in their incubator, more than a dozen of them, a mass of twitching yellow fur, sleeping. As my son and I got a little closer, they seemed to wake up all at once, sticking their little beaks up into the air and cheep-cheeping and climbing all over one another. Oh, it was adorable. So cute. I could scarcely tear myself away. Never mind the fact that I had just come from the Jewel Osco or the voice on the loudspeaker, cheap, cheap, cheap chicken Mondays, had persuaded me to buy a bucket of fried chicken that was still waiting in the car. When I returned home and I mentioned the brood of chicks to my wife, Angela was eager to go see them for herself. The last time the elementary school had brought in chicks, they had a webcam pointed at the clutch of eggs in the incubator so that you could watch them hatch if you tuned in regularly and caught it at the right moment. Angela had left that video feed open on her laptop for days as if she were binge watching something on Netflix, just waiting for those eggs to hatch with bated breath and bitten fingernails. Now, given her love of the bird, it shouldn't surprise you that she suggested we get a chicken of our own. That's apparently something a lot of folks are doing these days. It's the cool thing to do, raise their own chickens. They say the eggs are fantastic. You can compost the shells and you can use the manure in your garden. For my part, I thought this was a terrible idea. I mean, you know, life is crazy enough with two little kids. Lord knows I don't need some know-it-all chicken strutting around the house like the cock of the walk, getting feathers all over the place, standing in the bathtub, staring back at me defiantly when I just need to take a shower. You keep the chickens in the backyard, my wife replied wearily when I explained my concerns. It's called a chicken coop. Well, I softened the idea a little then. It didn't seem so bad, but my imagination still conjured up all kinds of problems. You know, there's the cost, the upkeep, all the trouble that comes with raising livestock, not to mention the fact that the latch on our backyard fence is broken, and there's nothing to keep that little chicken from pecking the gate open and slipping out into the neighborhood. Next thing you know, I got a police officer standing on my doorstep asking if the chicken that he picked up for jaywalking is mine and why it crossed the road. I just don't need that kind of drama in my life. Well, as it turns out, there's an ordinance in the city of Wheaton against raising any kind of livestock. No chickens allowed. But they still let us have children, however ill-prepared we were for it. When we first became parents, my wife and I decided that we were not going to rely on books to tell us how to raise our kids. Every child is unique. Every parent has their own philosophy. Human beings have been nurturing their young for millions of years, and while the times have surely changed, our fundamental instincts are still ticking. We can do this, we told ourselves. Well, you know, it turned out to be a lot harder than it looks. Who'd have thought? Occasionally desperate, I'd read an article or flip through a parenting book, 
People always say there's no instruction manual for raising kids, but man, there sure are a lot of books out there that claim to be just that. But in my experience, they're seldom helpful, and if anything, they seem to contradict one another. And they can also come off as condescending, you know, sage wisdom from perfect parents who have it all figured out. There's a book that just came out called How to Raise Successful People. I raised two CEOs and a doctor, the author boasts in Time magazine. Parents constantly ask me for advice. Okay, sometimes they beg me for it. I read this from my armchair in the living room, the one with the ketchup stains on it, as I surveyed the toys strewn across the floor and the overturned nightstand, and the three-year-old charging across the room with an Oreo cookie in one hand and a chicken nugget in the other, his diaper sagging with a terrible weight. No one asks me for parenting advice, and they certainly don't beg me for it. Nurturing children is hard work. Nurturing anything, really, is hard work. When I was a kid, I had three fish, and I named them after the members of the British rock band Motorhead, Lemmy Kilmeister, Wurzel, and the guitar legend Fast Eddie Clark. Those were my fish. I remember how they used to swim up to the edge of the tank uh, whenever I'd walk in the room like they were really happy to see me. I felt like we had a little bit of a bond, you know. But one day they started behaving oddly and I noticed that little bits of their fins had begun to flake off. The guy at the pet store told me the pH balance in the water was probably off and he gave me some drops to put in, hopefully clear up the problem, but it didn't work and the fish didn't make it. Admittedly, I didn't try all that hard to save them. But I thought of them last year when the real Lemmy Kilmeister died of congestive heart failure. But then, he hadn't done much to nurture his own health either, having smoked like a chimney and drank an entire bottle of Jack Daniels every day for 30 years. When the fish died, I guess, I guess that was the first time I realized the high stakes of nurture and negligence. It really is a matter of life and death. And it comes down, really, to how much you care. That's what nurturing is all about. You take a flower, for instance. You know, you can do all the right things, you can give it sunlight, talk to it, but if you don't really love it, you'll eventually neglect to do what you need to do, and, you know, it'll end up looking like this. Excuse me. There we go. Somebody gave me this this flower a few years ago. Um, it looked much better, of course, when they gave it to me the first time. Um, I don't know what I did wrong. You know, I put it in the window, I let it get some sun, I talked to it, I'd be like, hey, what's up? But, you know, it still ended up um, looking like this. You know, now that I think about it, there is one thing I forgot. Um, There we go. Hey, don't say I never did nothing for you. <laughs> it's all about love. 
It's all about love. Love is what nurtures. I take much better care of my children. I promise you this. But I just don't have that kind of nurturing instinct that, uh, that makes raising chickens or planting a garden a particularly good idea. Now, it might seem like an odd comparison, but the earliest church followers also struggled to raise a fledgling church. Up until this point, Jesus had told them what to do. He told them everything they needed to know. How to raise successful disciples. But now he's gone, and his disciples are left to figure out the rest for themselves, like trying to assemble furniture from Ikea without a manual. So Peter does his best. He he establishes a church in Jerusalem. And a little while later, the Apostle Paul try something a little different, and he begins planting congregations around the ancient Mediterranean. But Peter and Paul, both of them mothers, figuratively speaking, of the early church, they didn't always agree about how their children ought to be raised. You see, Peter really clung to his Jewish identity, and the church in Jerusalem was really a collective of Jews who believed in Jesus. Now, Paul, on the contrary, was committed to sharing the gospel with Gentiles and really creating an entirely new religion. In practical terms, this meant that Peter still believed in following Jewish laws and customs, whereas Paul no longer found that necessary. Two different ways to raise the church. Now, this tension came to a head during an incident in Antioch when Peter and Paul found themselves at odds over the question of circumcision. Did new converts to the faith need to be circumcised if they weren't already? Now, circumcision is a question for parents, too, of course. Another one of those details that parenting experts like to debate. But for Peter and Paul, this issue would decide the future of the church and what it was going to look like. And in Antioch, they nearly came to blows over it. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul recounts the incident. He says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? I believe that's what my son would call a sick burn. He's throwing shade at Peter. And in the end, he won out, which is probably a good thing, especially if you're thinking about joining the church. It means you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian, not one of our requirements. But like parents caught up in the details of sports schedules and test scores and playdates, Peter and Paul have a way of getting lost in the weeds. Now, there's a word for this in the church, adiaphora. It basically refers to all of the stuff that you could take or leave. You know, in the church, that might be particular vestments or liturgies or even theological beliefs if they aren't central to the faith. Adiaphora comprises the things that Jesus never taught us. They might be important, but they're always negotiable. Circumcision would be one of these, and it almost tore the early church apart. But really, friends, in the end, it wasn't 
circumcision or the way that communion was practiced or Paul's theology of the atonement that held the church together and nurtured it and raised it to maturity, if indeed we can call the church mature. It wasn't the adiaphora. It was the Holy Spirit, God's love that accomplished all of that. It was God's love that raised the church into what it is today. Jesus told them before he left, you will receive power when my Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Put simply, my love will nurture you. It will watch you grow and it will send you forth. So whether you're starting a new enterprise or raising a child, you're going to find yourself surrounded by distractions, by adiaphora. When it comes to kids, that's like, you know, the amount of screen time they get, the friends they make, the grades they bring home, the sports they play, the college they decide to attend, the clothes they wear, all of it matters to an extent, but only to an extent. You know, my son Ethan likes to wear shorts over his pants. So what? You know, Levi likes to eat chicken nuggets for breakfast. So what? What does it really matter at the end of the day? What matters is that their mother and I love them, and they know it, and they know that nothing can ever change that or take it away. Is that enough? Is love enough? I have to believe that it is. For those of you who are trying to nurture something, whether it's a new business or a garden or your children, remember that your love for it is the only thing that can help it grow. My wife Angela has a, a nurturing instinct, the same one that I think I'm lacking. That's one of the things I love about her. She didn't want to keep a, a chicken because of the eggs or the compost. She just wanted something to take care of. It's the same reason that she keeps a garden out back and a bunch of cactuses in the house. It's why we have two cats. It's why she keeps buying fish every time I tell her that I don't want to get a dog. It's why we have two kids. She loves all of these creatures deeply, with the exception of the algae eater in the back of the fish tank which she detests and seems to be growing larger every day. My mother's love for me was the best gift she ever gave me. It instilled me with confidence, with a sense of security, with a, with a belief that I have a place in this world, that I belong here. And without it, I never could have become what I am. Friends, nurturing life is holy work. There's no instruction manual for it, but that's because the most important part can never be found in a book, except perhaps in the gospel. Amen.